0: Welcome to Two Reels Podcast, where we like to look at recent films and pair them with an alternative film that hopefully reveals something interesting about both and gives you something interesting to think about while you watch either. I'm with my co-host, David Rubin. Hi, baby. Hey, what's up,
1: Rod? How you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm really excited. This is our episode in the lead up to this year's 90 whatever, I don't even know what year we're on, of the <laughs> Academy Awards, um, which is actually like hella early this year. It's like usually at the end of the month and suddenly it's literally this Sunday. Um, and we are going to invite, we're going to invite some other guests to pair some of the best picture nominees this year and think about different films that we could view them in conversation with and i'm really excited everybody has some really interesting ideas and really interesting things to think about when we're thinking about a lot of these movies um this year's best picture movies are like pretty good i'm liking a lot of them there's definitely some movies i wish had gotten a slot there but that's like every year i feel like everyone kind of like rings each other's necks about the things that were and weren't included i don't know what did you think did you like the movies this year
1: Oh, man, I thought the movies were really good. I am wondering, you might know better than me, is it common for there to be nine Best Picture nominees?
0: So, like, basically for the longest time, the Academy has always selected just five Best Picture nominees, and I think it was in, like, 2009 when there was, like, a huge hubbub around the fact that The Dark Knight wasn't nominated for Best Picture, even though it was, Mm. like, one of the most, like, critically adored films um that whole outrage like pre-twitter twitter outrage was um kind of like forced the academy's hand a little bit and then the next year in 2010 they amended their rules to be that every year the best picture category can can include from 5 to 10 films i don't think they've ever included like a full 10 but, like, the middle ground that I feel they've fallen on all the time is around eight, seven to eight films. But this year, there's a lot of them. Um, I was kind yeah. of surprised, too. I was like, Jesus Christ, like, these films are, this list, I had to do three different thumb scrolls. I was like, that's you know. <laughs> <That's a laughs> yeah, no. it seems
1: it seems lightweight, excessive to me. Like, I think I agree that five is probably not enough. But ten movies, it just makes, sometimes it makes it feel like when you watch the Oscars that, no other categories are that important and you're just waiting to watch this category and I think The Ten Movies kind of adds to that.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, for sure. Especially because, like, the Best Director category is still, like, locked in at five and, like, all the other categories are sort of locked in so you end up having films in that category that don't have a lot of other chips in the game in the other categories and they just kind of feel like they're there as placeholders which I feel like is, like, low-key insulting in a way. It's, like you know, there's like nine films and five of them also have their directors nominated for best director. And then it's like, what did the other four just like, you know, like make themselves? Like, what is the, like, what is the idea here? And also just like, I feel like if it wasn't for this 10, uh, 10 max, we literally would not have to think about Ford (laughs) v Ferrari. And yet, absolutely. Here it is. Just like chilling in that category, like loving life. It's psychotic to me.
1: Yeah, and if the Oscars weren't already long and boring enough, I feel like this really adds to that situation.
0: Okay, this is, like, always the divide, I feel like, between low-key, like, the straight audience and the gay audience. I literally want the Oscars to be nine and a half hours. I want them to (laughs) never end. I'm so addicted. I love it so much. I love when they bring out, like, some old bitch in, like, a wheelchair and they're just, like, there and everyone, like, stands up and claps and they can't, like, really speak and then they just get, like, wheeled off. I love, like, all of that pageantry so much. But I feel like people are like, yeah, this is way too long for the most part.
1: Do you watch, like, the Golden Globes? Like, are you an award show fiend, or for you, is it mostly just the Oscars? No, I'm an award show slut.
0: Like, I'll watch every <laughs> single one of them that I can. The only one I don't watch is the BAFTAs, because I can't figure out, like, where on God's green earth it's streaming. <laughs> like, I have to, like, fly abroad to watch it. But I do watch every single one of them when I can. Um, Although recently, like, the ability to just sort of, like, watch the speeches after is pretty nice. But the thing is, the other ones don't have that pageantry, right? So, like, watching the Screen Actors Guild Awards or, like, watching a stream of, like, the DGA Awards, like, whatever it is. Like, those ones are really straightforward award shows and don't have all of this sort of, like, pomp and circumstance. So they really are just, like... It's like C-SPAN versus like yeah. A State of the Union or something. But I do watch all of them. I'm obsessed. Golden Globe is my favorite. Everyone just gets like blacked out. It's so good. <laughs> well,
1: I think one of the fun things about the Oscars, I don't really do social media. so
0: Okay, brave. I
1: And I don't really read like Hollywood news ever. So this is the one time of year that I get to see famous people and then I realize who I hate and who I love and it's like <laughs> one time a year I get to make that decision like do I fucking hate Winona Ryder or do I love her and whenever she shows up I get to you know redecide whether I like her or not
0: amazing okay good so I'm glad that if the next time someone says what's the point of the Oscars I'll say well my friend Davey actually uh, <laughs> this is his compass for who he hates for a calendar year and that's really important to him um, yeah. I support that. I feel like that's real. I think kind of same. Like, the it's the ultimate example of when someone is like playing up their relatability during a speech. You can kind of like suddenly see through their bullshit or just like drink the Kool Aid really easily. It's a, definitely a good litmus test on like who's gonna be the like person that we're obsessed with for the next two years for sure. Like definitely, it's the time where you decide both who you hate and also like who I guess we're all gonna be completely addicted to for the most part.
1: Totally, and, like, a great way to cap off a big year. Like, I remember after McConaughey had that huge year where he was in True Detective, he gave, like, this insane speech where he said that his hero was him five years from now. Yeah. And I feel like it really, like, added to the McConaughey lore, whereas, like, some people give such shitty speeches after a good year that you just immediately forget about them.
0: 100%. 100%. Yeah, time was literally a flat circle for his ass.
1: <laughs> yeah, like... His movie goes bad and he's like, alright, I need to get a car sponsorship and I need to create a whiskey now.
0: Right. That, isn't it crazy he didn't have a whiskey earlier? That shit was like, wait, what? <laughs> it reminded me of when like Popeyes released their chicken sandwich and I was like, wait, y'all didn't already have this? Like, I could have sworn you did. That was his whiskey. I was like, I feel like you, you should have been the first person to hop on the whiskey trend to be honest i had the
1: exact same fucking reaction to popeyes i had no idea that they didn't have a chicken sandwich
0: i know it was psychotic i was like it was like mandala effect it was like seriously like I like <laughs> what like went back in my mind did like a whole usual suspects like mug dropping and i was like is the menu just never had this like they on you i'm like i swear this shit was already there but should we get into
1: our guest pairings I think that's a pretty good idea. And let's start with uh, my good friend and our good friend, friend of the show, Anthony Mays, who also has a podcast called Count the Dings. And he'll be talking about Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, which was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Foreign Language Film, Best Director, and Best Picture.
2: Let's do it. I'm Anthony Mays, and my pairing for Two Reels Oscar podcast is Parasite, nominated six times this year, including Best Picture and Best Director, with the 2002 film Gosford Park, nominated seven times, with Julian Fellowes winning Best Original Screenplay. While the more straightforward match with Gosford Park this year is Knives Out due to the sardonic, tonal approach to a murder mystery, find the depiction of class separation presented by two masterful filmmakers to be a lovely parallel. Let's start with Gosford Park a film that soared well over my head at the age of 13 when it came out. Robert Altman, the traffic conductor known for choreographing exceptional ensemble casts, bring a host of talented actors from multiple generations into one massive English country home. There are two different worlds at play, upstairs with the lords and ladies and downstairs with their traveling servants who are known solely by their masters' names. Now, Parasite, the movie I haven't been able to quit thinking about since I watched it. A poor Korean family living in a nearly subterranean apartment, leeching Wi-Fi off of a cafe that only works when they're sitting on their toilet, slowly infiltrates a rich family with a particularly gullible matriarch, replacing all the various servants one by one in a thrilling sequence, climaxing with the most creative use of peaches since the emoji. At this point in the film, I was amazed at how much had already been accomplished and wondered what was coming next. I won't spoil, but let's just say there's a different world downstairs as well. Both of these films exemplify the hunger and creativity of the servant class and contrast it to the buffoonish ignorance of wealth. They cover serious subject matter but inject a healthy dose of humor. Parasite would be a bold but deserving pick for best picture. Let's see if the Academy has the guts.
0: That pairing is so great. I I really think that you know regardless of how Parasite leaves the night, how many Oscars it leaves with, it, it is sort of like the film of the night. I think everyone's eyes are for sure on Parasite and are just sort of like really rooting for it and it's kind of um just like the sort of unprecedented presence that it has as a foreign language film I think a lot I I really I don't know where how the best picture race is going to shape up it feels sort of both locked and also weirdly loose and I think that the only film that I see sort of surprising everybody and coming out would maybe
1: be Parasite it feels like it has so much love I loved it so much (laughs) It was an amazing film, and it had a really cool sort of approach into the Hollywood circuit. Like, yeah, nobody really knew what it was. People started hearing about it. It was, for me at least, I couldn't find theaters that was that were playing it for the longest time. And then all of a sudden, I saw it, I told people about it, nobody had heard of it, and two weeks later, everybody had seen it and was obsessed with it.
0: Totally. It was a really good example of kind of both word of mouth and also really strong, like, festival presence. It obviously won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, which I think definitely started its moment. But, you know, a lot of films win that award and then don't really have a huge presence at the Oscars. Or if they do, it's strictly, you know, relegated to the foreign language film category. And, you know, this is nominated in screenplay, um, cinematography, director, best picture. Like it's just all of like the big, big categories and it's the movie is such an achievement to me. I just think it's Every act is a different genre. You know, the first is sort of this like satire, dark comedy. The second act feels like it has this horror, this sort of horror film, you know, element to it, and then the third is just this like beautiful tragedy and it it just feels so it's so strong. I couldn't I couldn't believe how much I was reacting to it and this pairing is so great to me because it really does a great job of collapsing this non-existent barrier between foreign language films and English language films by mm-hmm. kind of tying both of them to this singular thread that is class and the ways that that plays out under capitalism which Bong Joon-ho has sort of um kind of been memed as having said during one of the interviews during the press tour for Parasite um I just think it's a really it's just a really strong pairing because it kind of um, shakes off whatever prejudices people have towards foreign language films, and because the theme is just so resonant everywhere, you know, especially in America
1: for sure. Yeah, and I love the way that they advertise this movie. Like, most people who still haven't seen it might say something along the lines of, Oh, I'm not really into horror movies, or Is it really scary? And that's such an interesting oh, yeah. way for them to advertise it because it's really not a horror movie, but it, it doesn't really fall into any genre.
0: Totally. Totally. It feels totally free to just kind of do its own thing, but um, that poster just has this really kind of icy, cold, you know, it just feels really macabre and bizarre, and the trailers do have this kind of real... They are really suspenseful. I mean, the movie kind of... Mm-hmm. It's not like they're tricking you. Those things are in the movie, but the movie is just so much so much richer, you know? It just feels like it balances between so many things.
1: Yeah, and when you say it has, like, it feels like it has freedom, I totally agree. Historically, when you make those movies and people dub them as a race film or, um, you know, like a film about homosexuality, they kind of have to touch all these marks and be that movie all the way through. And because this doesn't really identify as any one thing, it really has the freedom to play between a bunch of different concepts.
0: Totally. 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 That's actually a really good segue to our next film, which I think Mm -hmm. is sort of a satirical play on a kind of classic Oscar movie. Which um, is just, it's kind of become like a farce that the Academy loves a Holocaust movie or a World War II movie, but this one does it in a really interesting way. So we're going to let Scott Meslow, who is a culture writer for GQ and Vulture, talk about um, Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit, which is nominated for six Academy Awards, which is crazy, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. And he's going to sort of take us through an interesting pairing and a way to think about a film that... Um, is definitely playing around (laughs) with those Oscar-y kind of (laughs) things in a really interesting
3: way. Hi, this is Scott Meslow, culture writer for GQ and Vulture, and I'm here to suggest a double feature pairing for one of this year's nine Best Picture nominees, Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit is certainly attempting something singular. The movie follows Jojo, an adorable 10-year-old boy growing up in Nazi Germany near the end of the war. Despite his mother's gentle prodding in the other direction, the naive Jojo has fully bought into the propaganda of the Nazi Party, idolizing Adolf Hitler so much that he imagines him, whimsically, as his best friend. At its best, a bar that, I'm sorry to say, the movie only occasionally hits, Jojo Rabbit is an exploration of how a young boy's worldview is shaped by both the specifics of his home life and the darkness of the times he was born into. In these dark times, the movie manages to be fairly sunny and optimistic about what it might take to rehabilitate a young boy with JoJo's internalized hatred. But in all its strengths and flaws, JoJo Rabbit also reminded me of a different movie that explores similar territory to dramatically different effect. Neil Jordan's The Butcher Boy, a pitch-black comedy adapted from Patrick McCabe's novel of the same name. The Butcher Boy, which originally hit theaters in 1997, stars 14-year-old Eamon Owens as Francie Brady. Francie is an outwardly cheerful but deeply troubled young boy living in a small town in Northern Ireland in the 1960s. His father is an abusive alcoholic. His mother is deeply, perhaps suicidally depressed. His primary outlets are running around town with his friend Joe, tormenting another boy who happens to come from a more stable and well-off family, and escaping into surreal personal fantasies inspired by TV shows about aliens and atomic bombs. As the movie goes on, It becomes clear that Francie's warped worldview is a reflection of the darkest aspects of the culture around him. As Francie grapples with the effects of alcoholism, and abuse, and the patriarchy, and the troubles on the horizon, so too does all of Ireland. For two movies with very, very different approaches to your classic coming-of-age narrative, there are plenty of similarities to be drawn between Jojo Rabbit and The Butcher Boy. Both stories concern themselves with the inner lives of young boys who use elaborate fantasies to cope with the darker elements of their actual lives. Both movies are set in eras of extreme cultural and political turmoil, and explore the effects of that turmoil on a child's psyche. And both make the risky but successful choice to hang the whole movie on the performance of an adolescent boy. Roman Griffin Davis for Jojo Rabbit and Eamon Owens for The Butcher Boy. Neither of whom had ever acted professionally before being asked to carry these movies, And both of whom knock it out of the park i won't spoil the endings of jojo rabbit or the butcher boy of course but i do hope you'll schedule your own double feature and consider how these two movies when taken as a whole explore the vulnerability of being young at precarious times in history and what that might mean for children growing up in 2020. if these movies are about anything it's how much children are shaped by the particulars of their environments and the people around them and how resting on that knife's edge It's up to each responsible adult to do their best to make the world a place that will help guide those children in the right direction.
1: All right, well, I think that was a a really good breakdown of both films, and I honestly love Jojo Rabbit. I saw it maybe two weeks ago. Uh, It's such a weird, cool film, especially I'd seen 1917 right before that, and it's great seeing a movie that kind of revolves around war but is... Is not really actually about the war all that much, and Scott kind of breaks down how interesting it is seeing it from a kid's perspective, but Mm -hmm. uh, this movie did a a really cool thing with uh, making a concept that we think about as so dark and so ugly pretty fun, and it's not quite a comedy, but it's a fun movie, and um, I think that's going to get a lot of attention at the Oscars as well.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, to be a hundred percent honest, I'm going to bravely come out and admit that I have not yet seen Jojo Rabbit, which is a huge blow to my community. I don't know what community that is, but um, I'm just being real. But I have seen Taika Waititi's other films, and he's such a great director of kids. Like, he just has this really great kind of um, effervescent effervescent style. I can't, I literally can't pronounce that word. Um, and he's just so great I you at directing. I think I nailed it. I actually think Webster is, let's change the pronunciation. Um, (laughs) He just is so good. He did um, a film I saw a couple years ago that um, he has this sort of like Wes Anderson style, Mm -hmm. um, which, but less sort of precious and less, um, I don't know, less playful in this almost annoying toy kind of way.
1: Less in your face, really. Yes.
0: Yes is yes. Um, And, He's just such a great director of, of kids. And I actually think it's so hard to direct kids and have them give a good performance. I think like kids' performances often get way, 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 way overhyped. And very rarely do I walk out of a film feeling like a kid has moved me. I just feel like half the time they're extremely annoying. I'm super <laughs> open to a kid killing it on screen, but half the time I just like don't really feel it. And I just think he has this really great playfulness um, that, from what I've seen, feels like it's informing this film a lot i'm really 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 dying to see it i don't think i anticipated it would have such a strong presence at the oscars that wasn't like that's not my motivation in seeing the film but i just don't think i would have predicted
1: it yeah i think you touched on a lot of points that i've been thinking about too um one is definitely how to wes anderson feel i think it's really interesting that you brought that up and hadn't even seen it um that was like my first thought coming out of it uh also yeah kids often ruin movies for me they're Movies are probably the reason that I hate kids so much. So, Interesting. So you're not going to have kids <laughs> because, of the,
0: because of Hollywood. Let's make sure. Because, that's of, films, because of films. Because of
1: films. But it was what I learned from um, Scott's sort of write-up on these two is this is both of these kids' first movies. And I was so impressed with this kid in Jojo Rabbit. I thought he did an amazing job and really carried the film, honestly. Um, and the movie itself was really cool. There are a lot of hidden elements that you don't really see in the trailer. And I think people got turned off of this movie from the trailer. Mm -hmm. Just seeing a a friendly Hitler to a lot of people can be a reason alone to not go see a film. Totally. But but I think you got to see it. I I don't think that that is actually a very offensive part of the movie. And uh, a lot of really cool things happen in the film. So I love that this got nominated and, I don't know if I think it's going to win best picture, but I'm really excited to see what it does walk home with.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think just its presence at the Oscars um, really cements Taika Waititi's like ascension and for that we're gonna, we're going to see a lot of him in the next few years. Um I think like one of the things that you see often in the Oscars is like anytime a filmmaker makes a film that makes a lot of money, they kind of get this blank check to make their next film and usually all eyes are on that film and they kind of just get you know, whether it's deserved or not, just maybe more nominations or just kind of can ensure that the Academy is seeing, um, is going to watch the films. Half the time I feel like the debate is like, are these people even like sitting down to watch out of these movies? And I do think that like his work on Thor Ragnarok, the second Thor Mm -hmm. film um, Mm -hmm. in the MCU, the way that that film was just critically like really adored and really kind of reoriented the Thor films and that character into being less of like a B character no one cared about and more... Um, just more interesting. Or I think it's the third film, actually. I literally forgot it the Dark World. I was going
1: to say, I don't want to be a nerd here or anything, but I'm
0: pretty know, sure
1: Ragnarok right. was the third Thor no. Was the
0: third. Yeah, you're right.
1: My bad, my bad. <laughs> and if you've seen
0: Endgame, you know that the Dark World has a psychotic presence in that movie. It's actually, like, such a troll how much of the Dark World is, is, is in that one. But he did do a really good job of finding a way to make not just Thor, like, his own character that you care about, but also finally found something to do with Hulk which I think is a character Mm -hmm. that so many filmmakers and so many films have just like not known what to do with like and I just think Taika Waititi solved a lot of problems with that movie and I think a lot of the goodwill he got from that um Mm -hmm. has sort of like seeped into people's appreciation of Jojo Rabbit and I think we're just gonna see so much of him in the next few years and I'm pretty Mm -hmm. excited for him and he's also like in a lot himself like I keep seeing
1: him in movies like him as an actor yeah, and uh, one one nerd comment I will make for you, Rod, is that uh, Thor Ragnarok was also based on one of the best Hulk comics of all time,
4: Planet oh, wow. Hulk,
1: and I think that's where he got a lot of his inspiration, so if you ever feel like diving into that world, great place to start for you and anybody listening.
0: Wow, good to know. I actually, like, for some, I know some of the, like, like comic book texts that are adapted into the film but i don't think i realized that that element of the story was also pulled from like source material
1: Interesting.
0: is he literally like an amazon like a warrior like a gladiator
1: yeah i mean there's so planet hulk and then world war hulk are two really good ones and they're their own story about hulk kind of getting stuck on this planet but it's like this movie exists during those comics oh
0: interesting interesting yeah I'm into it. I also will, again, bravely admit that I find Hulk hot, and that's okay. That's actually okay.
1: I do not blame you for that. He I know. He amazing. He's amazing. <laughs> it's weird. It's like every time he gets angrier and turns bigger and green, I get hotter and turn bigger also. You
0: know? I know, me too. I'm like, interesting, neither of our <laughs> pants are fitting right now, and I think there's like a little Hulk in all of us <laughs> in a weird way. <laughs>
1: Uh, I think that's a great opportunity to jump into uh, the third movie here, um, because Joey, Joseph Bean Kahn, our third co-host, our I guess, who, is, third co-host. <laughs> yeah, who uh, is not with us today, but did do a pairing himself uh, that we're excited to hear. Um, so it is Greta Gerwig's Little Women, and that's been nominated for six Academy Awards including two in the acting categories for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress. So let's hear what Joey has to say about that.
4: During the press tour ahead of Little Women, Greta Gerwig told The rap about rereading the 1868 book for the nth time and finally realizing it was a story about authorship, ownership, women, money, and how that all intersects. Her adaptation, which is nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, tells the story of the March sisters, Meg, Amy, Beth, and especially Joe. Gerwig's Joe, played by Saoirse Ronan, is feisty, lively, and overflowing with talent. Triumphantly, at the end, rather than marry, she sells her book and, most importantly of all, holds on to her copyright and royalties. In Gerwig's story, money and writing is a path to independence. It's a tool for a woman in the 1860s to own something and control her life. Joel and Ethan Coen have a decidedly different view of the lucrative side of writing in their 1991 film Barton Fink. We meet Barton, played by John Turturro, backstage moments before his gritty street-level play receives a rave review and the attention of Hollywood. Barton's agent convinces him to take a thousand-dollar-per-week deal with Capital Pictures. He jokes. The common man will still be here when you get back. Barton moves into a room at the half-haunted Hotel Earl and begins a psychic descent into writer's block madness in the movie industry. Barton, like countless writers before, John Mahoney plays a William Faulkner stand-in, has sold his soul to the film industry. Inevitably, damnation awaits. The films are an interesting pairing because of their view of the writer and of success joe march is cool you get why timothy chalamet's laurie wants to be a march sister hanging with Sir ronan in beautiful sprawling concord seems dreamy barton on the other hand is a nightmare stuck up self-involved and painfully unself-aware and his claustrophobic room looks like hell it would hurt to see joe locked into a five book deal selling schlock but even if that were her fate we'd know that she had worth outside her work for barton All there is is his writing. Hollywood's golden handcuffs are a perfectly terrible punishment for a man with only one way to measure his self-worth. He claims he never needs a critic's approval, but that's all he needs. The money is wasted on him. That Gerwig reading the book again years later latched on to the idea of money and writing is fascinating. When the Coens released the film in the early 90s, there was still a potent stigma against selling out, against making it. Clearly these days that's fully faded away. There's a certain privilege in protecting the art at all costs, and the Cohens do judge Barton's snootiness, but mainly because it's hypocritical. Gerwig never judges Joe for selling whatever stories she can. There's a view now in the ultra-segmented economy that you should get whatever money you can. That Joe uses it and her inheritance to help the community by building a school simplifies the equation. But I think there'd be sympathy either way. She wants a room of her own, and that takes making money of her own. If writing happens to be the way to do it, then that's the way it should be done. Barton would bristle at the very thought of a writer doing it for the paycheck. But we know he'd take the check as well. He always does.
0: Okay, obsessed. So, I (laughs) loved Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I loved it so much. I saw it twice. I think it's Whoa. so great. It's so incredible. Um, I just think it's so hard to adapt something that people have seen or read or just kind of like is just has just been in the cultural consciousness for so long and make it feel new. And I think this film is such an incredible accomplishment. It feels so contemporary and modern. And it does, but it doesn't sacrifice any of its time and place. Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel about
1: period pieces? Are you like a period piece fan? They're usually not where I like. If I'm going to the movies, I will almost never go for a period piece, but I will watch them. You know, when I'm at home on any given night, and I I enjoy them for sure. And I love history, so it's kind of fun to see a period piece based in a time that I find interesting.
0: Totally, totally. So if you don't see period pieces, you've never seen Keira Knightley in a film. Is what I'm gathering. She has <laughs> she has literally not stepped foot into the century. Was she in Pirates of the Caribbean though? She is in Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay, you got lucky. She literally did the soccer <laughs> movie, the Pirates movie, and then literally has yeah. not taken off her bodice in like ten years. I'm like Chica, Bro. like how about one movie set in the current times? It's psycho.
1: I have seen Bendit like Beckham probably fifteen times though, so I feel pretty familiar with <laughs> okay.
0: You're a you're a knightly scholar. <laughs>
1: yeah i like to think so i thought this was a cool comparison also um one thing that i thought was really interesting and we kind of touched on this way earlier here um was this idea of the two different movies each sort of valuing money and having the main characters value their money and their kind of gaudiness and their reputation so much and i think about the oscars in comparison to that And how the Oscars have just become more and more of this production, clearly making money is becoming more valuable for them, getting more ads in there, more sponsors. And I wanted to get your opinion uh, if you feel like that, A, uh, was a good comparison by Joey and if you agreed with his, and B, if you feel like it's helped the Oscars or hurt the Oscars by making them care so much about money and not so much just about the films.
0: I think it's definitely hurt the Oscars. I think I think the way that it's hurt the Oscars is is it's more just about um, the fact that films that make a lot of money just because because Hollywood is is money oriented as any business is a film that makes a lot of money is viewed by the Academy as being worth paying more attention to, right? So like all of the nominations this year for Joker, for instance, Todd Phillips's the Joker origin story with Joaquin Phoenix. You know, I can't mm-hmm. guarantee... I mean, that movie obviously had a lot of... Um, the momentum around that film was huge. It was um, I got the, um, the Grand Lion at the Venice Film Festival. There was just a lot of conversation around it before it started, so it was probably on the Academy's radar. But, you know, if that movie hadn't made $1 billion, I don't know <laughs> how much the Academy would have necessarily paid attention to it. So I think that money is both the end goal of Hollywood, but when it comes to the Academy, it's also kind of their, it's like their push notification. Like they just suddenly feel like (laughs) they have to like give a shit about a movie. And I think it has hurt it because I think, and again, to bring it back to Parasite, a film which deserves all of these nominations, there is no doubt that the reason it is so present in the series Academy Awards is because it has made so much money. Like it truly has made so much money. Um, And I think it's a bummer to know that if this film or any film that is made on the scale of Parasite or has the sort of, like, restrictions of distribution that Parasite has, if it didn't make this much money, that it might not have gotten, you know, this much attention. And I I just want the Academy to, like, keep that same energy, you know, and really kind of, like, you know, even if the films that make a lot of money are important to them, they shouldn't assume that a film need to make a ton of money in order to be an example of like artistic excellence for that given year it's kind of a tall order it's like quite an ask for the academy but Mm -hmm. you know i mean i think comparing it for instance to barton fink like a film that if it came out today would probably not be a huge part of the um oscar conversation to be honest you know a lot of the coen brothers movies they've had a lot of presence but over the years like you know, I think we're just moving further and further away from a studio system that allows a lot of these movies to get made in the first place. And so they kind of need to make a lot of money in order to even get greenlit or need to have the promise of money. And so it's sort of this, like, cycle of money, just, like, cash everything around you, truly. Um, But something interesting about thinking about Barton Fink with Little Women is that um, this is Greta Gerwig's second film, and Barton Fink is, I think, the Coen Brothers' fourth film um mm. in a pretty prolific career but it's you know it's pretty fair to think about Barton Fink as part of their early period mm. um and there is just a real kind of um energy and excitement in a filmmaker an auteur's kind of early years you know like it, it's not that they become less interesting over time a lot of times they become more interesting I think The Irishman is an f- example of a film that is like so the result of a great filmmaker aging and getting (laughs) older. And that is what makes it so powerful. Um, But there's just something really incredible about Greta Gerwig's energy in Little Women. And it's one, because she's an incredible talent, but two, I think she just sort of is like, you know, learned so much from that first film and all the films she's worked on. And there's just this sort of like energy around your early projects. And it's, it's nice to see it get recognized instead of it being one of those things where, Gerwig's ninth film gets recognized because it's it's her time, quote-unquote, or she's like, do, um, mm. even if it's not her most interesting. I think there's just something about that energy that is always really palpable in a movie theater.
1: Yeah, well, and when I think about the Coen brothers, and you mentioned, like, Barton Fink might not get nominated today, they fall into this kind of indie movie style classification a lot of times, oh, and nowadays, yeah. I feel like when you call something indie, it just means hey, it's not really going to get recognized at the Oscars. Right. Uh, And that seems like maybe the most standard definition of indie a lot of times.
0: Yeah, Um, totally.
1: And I didn't see Little Women, but I know it's a remake of, of an older film... Uh, would you classify Little Women as indie at all, or the older movie as an indie film at all? I, I wouldn't classify it as indie. This movie definitely is,
0: um, it had, like, a, pretty, a budget. Not super sizable, but definitely had a budget. I mean, I, I would, if anything, consider Little Women to be, like, IP. You know, like, it's a, comp- it's a really recognizable property. It was in, in 1994, I want to say. Um, and starred, went on a rider, your example of an of an actress you <laughs> learned to hate thanks to the Oscars. Um, it was also a film with Elizabeth Taylor. It's obviously a, um, a book, maybe you've heard of it. Like, it's just been done so many, so many times. Um, but I wouldn't consider it indie. I mean, I think, like, indie as a designation also just feels kind of, like, meaningless in some ways yeah, now. You definitely. know, I think, like, a studio like A24 or Neon, these aren't, like, you know... Are legacy studios they are quote unquote smaller independent distributors but you know their presence and their financial um leverage grows with each year um and I think really indie has become kind of like a brand it's almost like a um like a descriptor or an adjective it's like a sort of sensibility that a film has you know I feel I feel like a couple over the last decade like spotlight when it won best picture and moonlight when it won best picture were praised for being like two of the lowest grossing best picture winners i remember that just being such mm-hmm. a large part of like the conversation that monday after the oscars which is such like a psychotic <laughs> way to talk about these films but is like yeah. is part of the conversation like joey said like it is about money and it is interesting to finally have a film that is sort of taking this classic text and really being honest about the ways in which um money just factors in it's sort of almost like meta in this weird way where it's like autonomy requires like so much financial leverage and um and that's just like real that shit is real well
1: i'm gonna have to go see it
0: you have to go see it. the one thing i will say is i'm thrilled florence pugh got a best supporting actress nomination she's such a talent but this is the um the spot that I think was stolen from Jennifer Lopez for Hustlers, which was mm. devastating <laughs> for <laughs> anybody who fucks with JLo as um, humiliatingly hard as I do. So that <laughs> is the one thing I'll hold against this film, but also like Matt deserved. It's a really great performance.
1: Yeah. I mean, I saw the Super Bowl halftime show and okay. JLo. Killed it.
0: She was literally, she's literally 50 years old and has never, I don't understand. She's never looked better. I'm just like, how, like, what is going on here? Like, singularity achieved. I don't know what's going on with this person. And I just feel like it's such a missed (laughs) opportunity for the Oscars to not just, like, give her that moment and give us that moment. Like, it's just fun to see a celebrity and a real star at the Oscars. Like, it's a moment. Like, why not just, like, seize that moment and really, like... I don't know. Just have fun. Like, it's it's a moment. It's worth seeing Jennifer Lopez get nominated for an Oscar. It's just more
1: interesting. Um, I bet you she will give an award or she, she'll she be there doing something. Do you think she'll, she'll go or do you think she wouldn't go? <laughs> you think she'll protest it? I think she'll
0: protest it. She's like, I'm busy. I'm with A-Rod. Like, she's, <laughs>
1: like, she's like, you know, Shakira, you can go instead.
0: <laughs> yeah, please welcome Jennifer Lopez. Shakira walks out and Academy doesn't even know <laughs> the difference. Like, humiliating. <laughs> But that's a good segue to our next film. No spoilers. Um, We're going to hand it off to our last pairing. We're going to hand it over to Jordan Cruciola, an associate editor at Vulture and host of the Disaster Girls podcast. And she's going to be talking about Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his ninth and supposedly second to last film, Mm -hmm. um, which is nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including best picture best director and is pretty much guaranteed at this point to nab brad pitt his first oscar for best supporting actor which is kind of definitely a moment um so we're gonna let her take it from here and yeah
5: once upon a time in hollywood is one of my absolute favorite movies from 2019 and it it's top two or three um all-time Quentin Tarantino for me and he might very well be my favorite director of all time so that's saying something and I think the perfect complementary film for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is actually another one of my favorite movies from last year and that is Hustlers a wonderful vibrant vital film that I went to uh opening weekend and it was a crowd that was down to party, it was a community experience, it was an event. And similarly, both times that I went and saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at Quentin Tarantino's very own theater, The New Beverly, it felt like truly being in a community of people who wanted to experience these movies together. And here is why I think that they are inextricably linked and why they become better when you consider both of them together, actually. Uh, A topic that is very important to me is um, as a as an asexual spectrum identifying person uh, when the primary love story in films is centered around friendship. It's something that we don't see explored deeply enough often enough. It is a kind of love and a kind of connection that is every bit as valid and viable and emotionally poignant as romantic love and in the story of once upon a time in hollywood the primary relationship at the core of it is cliff and rick this is ultimately a an asexual connection between two men who are as uh kurt russell tells us in a voiceover what is it uh someone who's more than a brother and a little less than a wife and then in hustlers you have the beautiful central connection between Jennifer Lopez's character and Constance Wu's character that is cemented from that beautiful moment at the start of the film when Constance Wu looking bereft goes to the rooftop of the building where the strip club is located below and she sees Jennifer Lopez lounging in this ostentatious fur coat and Jennifer Lopez identifies in her a kindred spirit a soul in need of her embrace and she opens up at that fur coat and says come into my fur and to have these two movies that are so wildly different and so extremely feminine on one end in Hustlers and so extremely masculine on the other end with Once Upon, to have them meet in the middle at this beautiful place where the love story all along is between two companions who mean so much more to one another in such a complex way than we typically explore in all its nuanced wonder um, in in our feature films or our television shows. To see that come to the forefront in two of the best films from last year, one of which we're about to see if it's going to be properly recognized by the Academy Awards, and one of which we already know in Hustlers is not going to be sufficiently recognized by the Academy Awards. It just makes my heart sing, and it makes me believe that that if we invest in these kinds of non-traditional love stories, that we can tease out so many more rich aspects of the human experience of relationships. And, and I just, I love it. I I think we owe it to ourselves to program this as perhaps one of the most surprising double features you didn't see coming.
1: All right. Thanks Jordan for that pairing. Um, And I gotta say, I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood personally, and I love Quentin Tarantino. I think that there's, a little bit of a world out there where because he's made so many good things, people just have to compare each one to the one before and was it good or was it bad? I love Quentin Tarantino so much that whatever he does, I'm just excited about it because I just want to see what crazy shit he's going to come up with next. But what did you think about the movie?
0: Honestly, I'm so sad to say that I didn't like it. (laughs) It really bums me out. I love Tarantino so much. He is such an important filmmaker he is one of the most he's you know probably the most influential important filmmaker of his generation um and he's also a filmmaker who's so great to pair things with because his films are filled with so many references and you know it's always in conversation with film even if they don't take place in hollywood the way that this one did but i just feel like for the last few like you said like it is hard to not compare them because he also has such a like succinct catalog you know like nine Mm -hmm. films just kind of Lends itself to putting them. It's like when you rank your favorite artists, like albums. There's just something really like quantifiable about that number, and mm-hmm. I just feel like the last few films I like have not been able to latch onto. They feel really like meandering, and part of that I think is that his longtime editor Sally Menke passed away um, mm-hmm. in the mid 2010s, I believe. I think potentially Death Proof or Inglorious Bastards was the last film they worked on together. And I kind of feel like her, like, she kind of, like, reeled him in a little bit, or kind of just, like, gave his films, like, a center to be held by, and I don't know, something about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just, like, I wanted to love it so much, but it felt like such a, an idea, but wasted, such a great idea, but wasted
1: potential, in a way. I don't know. I want, Also, it was fucking long. It's long. uh, It's long. Editing alone, I mean, can help with something like that so much, and... Uh, I think when you look back, like my favorite Tarantino movie of all time is True Romance. And he Ooh. didn't direct it. Right. Because, you know, that's that's why I think it's so good is he had Tony Scott, who was such a good director, say like, Tarantino, you're a fucking madman and you're a genius. Let me turn this into something even more amazing than what you would do with it. Mm. And you're probably right. I mean, an editor solves for that when you have somebody who's basically saying, dude, we got to cut out at least 20 minutes of this movie. No more just... like the The first hour of this movie... Almost nothing happens, and you realize you're an hour in, and you just think, like, God, I've been sitting here for four hours. Right. But I do feel like it picks up after that. That's I got really excited during the second half of the movie, especially.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, like, super patient. Like, it's not even, like, a movie has to be <laughs> short to, like, grab my attention, but it did feel long because it just felt like... I don't know, it's interesting because it feels to me like a movie like Jackie Brown, right, which I think is also one of his greats I love so much, is the kind of film Mm -hmm. you would expect him to do at this age, right? Like, it just feels sort of more like a adult kind of more aged old man movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this feels like it's kind of taking the place of like, okay, this is someone who is approaching what he has said is the end of his like cinematic filmmaking career, nearing the end of it at least. And so I kind of get why it's maybe slower and more meandering. But I just feel like the idea of the film is so good. And like, you know, kind of making a film about the generation gap of America in the 60s and framing it through the context of like, the generation gap in Hollywood and that these old type of Hollywood actors are being, you know, sort of um, going extinct. And these two that he's chosen to focus on are living next door to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, like two people who are so perfectly representative of this new era of the 70s and that you know charles manson is intersecting someone who is such a huge part of like the 60s and kind of the shift from the i feel like the optimism and excitement of the 60s to like the gnarliness of the set there's just so much there and i just feel like i wanted more of the sharon tate thing i know there's been a Mm -hmm. lot of like hubbub about like marco robbie didn't have enough lines which i think is such like a really empty way to like treat feminism or representation like more lines like that just feels so like ridiculous and uninteresting but i do wish there was just more there i wish the two stories were more parallel and more full together and so that they would intersect in a way and like that's the sally Menke thing that i think is missing i think that sort of non-linear like leading together multiple narratives which i always assume and still kind of assume is part of the tarantino screenplay I think maybe a lot of that is really mastered in that editing suite and that kind of feeling of, you know, really kind of cocaine high of things, like, (laughs) moving between each other really fast. Maybe that was more Menke's touch than his. I couldn't say. It's completely speculative. But I would just love to see a version of this movie in which, like, Sharon Tate's story is equally full and we're seeing them sort of... We're seeing you know, Rick's lows and her highs and then they meet in this moment. And
1: Sure. I definitely think it ended better than it started. Yeah. And I think part of it is I'm such a sucker for everything in film. I'm like not that critical generally. And I loved watching Leo in this movie. I mean, Brad Pitt is always fun to watch and that character was made for him. But I feel like generally Leo plays this... Character who is always the same. Think like Departed and Inception and Shutter Island. Like this, kind of smooth but secretly really dark side and struggling with it and can't get past it and it's slowly eating away at him. Right. And in this movie, he was just kind of a he was like a fucking buffoon. He he was totally like stupid <laughs> half the time. And like the scene where he's in his trailer and when he's yelling at the people in his driveway. I mean, it's just like a side of night. Leo. <laughs> You just like, you don't get that Leo very often. And it made me honestly appreciate him more. I felt like I saw his range more in this movie than I've seen maybe ever.
0: Yeah, I really feel that. I've always felt like Leo is the most overrated dramatic actor of his generation. I just don't think he's that great. But I do think he's the most underrated comedic actor of his generation. He is so funny and he just for some reason loves suffering (laughs) like loves (laughs) just like going through it but like his performance in wolf of wall street and this performance these are two like they're such good performances they're such good characters and i agree i walked out of it being like wow like the highlight is him for sure like i just feel like i don't get to see him do this that often and i love it every single time i get to see it he's so he's so good
1: yeah well I mean it's it's interesting we made it through four pairings three of which we both kind of agreed in like the movies or didn't see them yeah <laughs> and this one we got to disagree on so it'll be interesting to see uh what happens with these movies and um, I guess if, if our listeners want something fun to watch these Oscar movies with and get a different perspective I feel like we're lucky to have four really smart people giving us some options.
0: I agree. It's a really good um, little marathon you can do before Sunday and a way to think about these films in conversation with each other and also just kind of, you know, with the Oscars. Like, what do these films mean in regards to the story the Academy wants to tell us about a year in film or like the history of film or something? I agree. I think these are really great parents and I, I, I'm excited to see some of them myself. <laughs> for sure
1: yeah and and thanks to uh, anthony scott jordan and joey obviously for for sending these in and can't wait to debrief for the after the oscars
0: Agreed. yeah definitely everybody watch the oscars and um try to keep the misery to <laughs> a minimum and yeah i can't wait for us to all chat about it after. all right well thanks rod it
1: was great chatting with you and i'll talk to you again soon